Hello, friends, and welcome to the Exploring Washington State podcast. My name is Scott Cowan, and I'm the host of the show. Each episode, I have a conversation with an interesting guest who is living in or from Washington State. These are casual conversations with real and interesting people. I think you're going to like the show. So let's jump right in with today's guest. Well, I'm sitting down today with Sarah Harvey. Sarah, you are the executive chef at Alderbrook. But I also think, is it correct to call you an oyster rancher, farmer, herder? What, what, you know, what's going on uh, there? Far, farmer is usually the vernacular Far, that we use. I mean, rancher sounds kind of grandiose though. You've got like, you know, the. I do. I mean, I like to think that I'm, I'm riding around on my imaginary steed on the beach. <laughs> Just getting stuck in the mud. All right. Riding a giant, giant gooey duck across the tides. Perfect. See that? See there, there, let's get creative here. So Sarah, thanks for taking the time to sit down with me today. And Delighted. what I think we're going to go a couple of paths here, but you know, let's talk about your journey to Alderbrook first. How, 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 what road led you to Alderbrook? It starts with oysters. Um, I moved to the canal six and a half years ago with my partner with the goal of starting an oyster farm. We'd both been in kitchen management in Seattle for years and we're kind of looking for that next step. Didn't want to open our own spot. Didn't want to get into the sales game. So that, that kind of leaves manufacturing. So we decided oysters were our shared passion. We were both coming out of seafood backgrounds. And the Hood Canal's the pretty pretty perfect spot for it. It was the furthest we could think that we could still commute to Seattle. Mm-hmm. So Brennan's about two, two and a half hours from Seattle, depending on the drive. And for the first two and a half years that we lived out here, my partner still commuted to Seattle. So since we couldn't both do that, I... Knew a, knew a guy who was the chef down here, Josh Delgado, super talented um, chef. He's the chef at LaCoin now up in, up in Fremont. And he offered me a job, told him we were moving out. I'd been working at the Edgewater in Seattle. And so I actually started working here two weeks before we closed on our house. And I was coming out on my weekends, working shifts, and then we moved out. I came out immediately. My partner did kind of a two-month transition. We were slowly moving, moving out by ourselves. And... It was great. I worked here for about a year and then had the opportunity to move over to Hitchcock on Bainbridge, where I had worked previously. So I stepped into the CDC role at Hitchcock um, after I did a year here at the Alderbrook and left on good terms, was happy with the company, but just wasn't wasn't moving on up. Mm -hmm. So spent a year at Hitchcock. Uh, Drive to Bainbridge, though, was really long. It's an hour 20 in each direction. So again, just too much commute time. And an opportunity came up at Hamahama, which was 10 minutes down the road from my house. So my friend, Sean Mitchell, was leaving his role there as the saloon manager. And I sent in a resume. I didn't know anybody down there. Uh, interviewed. And about a month later, I started as the saloon manager, which turned into the kind of culinary director. I was there for two years. And that was the period that COVID happened. So we had an incredible first year. COVID happens right at the beginning of 2020, and the company made a really hard pivot. We were already doing an outdoor restaurant, so fortunately, we were able to pretty much take a small break, make some changes, and then come back. Adam James, uh, the general manager at Hama, just br- brilliant pivot with all of the, the A-frames, some of the outdoor dining. We put in a reservation system, um, and it was just it was kind of a crazy, crazy year, and after after a year of that, I realized that I had shifted out of restaurants somehow into this pandemic triage sandwich situation where we were, you know, doing really reduced menu, really reduced covers. And it wasn't it wasn't the kind of operational work that I really enjoyed doing. So 
I stayed in contact with uh, some friends here at the Alderbrook, the uh, food and beverage director at that point, and uh, the manager at the Union City Market. And they let me know that there was an, an opening that was kind of in the same vein. Union City Market was looking for a property manager to come in and take over the culinary program, retail space. So after two years with Hama, one of those being a COVID year, I, um, I accepted the offer from the Alderbrook and came back. There'd been some, some changes in that time. A couple managers in the department had shifted. So I was really excited to come back and kind of see what we could do with this program because we were still in pretty full lockdown phase. Right. Um, you know, and it was it was exciting because we had so much potential. This space, Hook and Fork Restaurant at the Union City Market, had opened in June of 2020. You know, it was they were already they were already building out before the pandemic happened, and so when it did, it was it was kind of a, a an opportunity for the resort to get one foot into the outdoor dining without having to start from scratch. And um, so I came over there. We we had a great year. We stabilized a lot of the program, um, increased revenue, added some different positions, added some some service pieces, and it was awesome. And then a year after that, the uh, the executive chef position had been open for a, a couple of minutes here at the Alderbrook. They'd seen their kitchen manager depart and had decided to move back into more of a traditional hierarchy. So uh, the general manager and I chatted for. A while. I think we. I think we spent probably ten hours interviewing again for this position. So, um, and then the they offered me the opportunity to come back to the resort proper and take okay. over the food program. And that oh. was um, that was spring last year. So I'm coming up on almost year and a half, almost two years here right. in this role. But it's been really exciting to come back to the resort with the experience that I've had working out on the peninsula, working on Bainbridge, working with Hama, really focusing on our oyster program. Um, bringing local seafood back into kind of the forefront. The Elderbrook has always been a seafood house. We have our own oyster beds. Mm-hmm. We're a historic property. But being able to share some of the operational knowledge and some of the working knowledge being an oyster farmer, um, I think has really allowed me to take our program and, and get dynamic with it and look at how we're talking about oysters, how we're sharing oysters with our guests. So do you ride your gooey duck to work? Is that the, you know, the... In good weather, yeah, I do actually. Uh, put a put a little harness on that guy, and then we just head straight down the tidelands. All right. So let's. I'm not a restaurant guy. I mean, I like food. Yeah, I like food a lot. Um, but I, I think maybe I had one restaurant job in my entire career. You know, was a, was a server for a while. You know, I've just I've I've managed to, and I never did fast food, so I've, I've managed to avoid restaurant work. So a lot of my questions are more, you know, theoretical, but like, what have you noticed good or bad about coming out of COVID? I mean, I've talked to musicians and in, in, in bar owners and, you know, and what they're kind of saying is the crowds aren't quite coming back yet. Some nights are great. It's not as consistent. People are a little apprehensive about sitting in closed spaces. Maybe. Yeah. Are you noticing that at Alderbrook has, has Alderbrook bounced back strongly? I, it's, yeah, we have actually, and it's been really it's been really cool to see the different departments here continue to work together. I think, as far as the resort goes, I'd say our management team is the tightest it's ever been. We are doing more cross department um, work. You know, I'm working with our spa director right now on a cool kind of new menu concept for that side of the building. Okay. But because the resort has so many outlets, and because we were already kind of an outdoor experience based property, mm-hmm. we were in a great spot to handle social distancing. We already had a uh, space like the Gathering Grove, which is a fully outdoor um, dining location kind of up in our woods. We hike up the trail with a Kubota 
and we do fully outdoor cooking there. We have the Hook and Fork restaurant at Union City Market, two miles down the road, another fully outdoor restaurant, kitchens outside and everything. And we, that first uh, first year, I think it was 2021, we launched our, um, our cats, our culinary adventure tents. And so they kind of look like little snow globes. We got, we got a ton of press on them the first year. And they were great because they gave folks the ability to do social distancing in a really high-end kind of way, wine pairings, chef tastings, right. glamour, candles, all that. So right. that was super fun. This year, we've made a pivot away from the individual dining because we've our guests have really embraced kind of coming back to community, we've noticed for the most part. We did some ticketed dinners this year for the first time um, since before COVID. And those, the ticket, we've sold out. We've sold out all of them. It's been incredible. We've done some groves. We just did a murder mystery dinner on our boat. We didn't take the boat out, but we did it on the boat, which was okay. really cool because everybody went out on the dock. Um, we sold that out. We've done our canal cookouts at the market we're coming back to, and those are those are going awesome. And we're really excited about winemaker dinners and chef dinners okay. um, coming up in 2024. So. We shut our dining room down for six months um, during COVID. We also did a big restaurant renovation during that point. We used we used the opportunity to, to take it down to the bones and do a really major renovation that we needed. So it's been exciting to come back. It's been beautiful, and I think because we're not we're not you know a Motel Eight. Our our clientele are are existing at a certain level if they're coming all the way out here, booking the rooms, doing all that. So I think we've been really fortunate that our our demographic, our guests haven't been quite as impacted as, you know, maybe the folks who are going to Applebee's on the weekend. Right. Every weekend. So there's been, we've had some fluidity with the way that we're handling the programs, but we've mm-hmm. also been really lucky that we have so many folks who've been coming for years. We have generational memories. Here we have folks whose grandparents brought them here in the 70s and now they're coming in with their kids. And so I think there's also a, a longer relationship with a lot of our guests and a lot of right. our families. And so they've given us the patience and given us the space to play around with different programs and given us great feedback about it. We've tried we've tried a few different things. Most of them have kind of worked out. A couple have been real hitters. A few of them we're not going to do again. But <laughs> regardless, we've had fun. And it's always it's always been about keeping the guests at the center of this. It's always about making sure there's something new, even if this is your third time coming to the resort this year. So I've got a question for you because you said your, your kitchens are outdoors and things like that. So I'm going to share an experience my wife and I had oh. at a local restaurant here. And I mean, no disrespect to the restaurant, none at all. During COVID, our anniversary is in January. In Wenatchee, the weather in January is not hospitable. They put, instead of igloos, like, like the Davenport and Spokane put igloos out for social distancing that was kind of cool they they got a lot of press for that what this restaurant did was they bought a bunch of greenhouses and they set greenhouses up outside now and they had heaters in them they were climate wise the climate was fine what they didn't take into account was the train 50 yards away and and the main drag of wenatchee 30 yards the other direction and you know so you were we were hearing the clang of train cars and semi trucks going by it, it really kind of disrupted the ambiance but what i noticed was they had an indoor kitchen and by the time we got our food it was cold yeah that's and, but that's been an issue i think for all the outdoor concepts right and you know how do you how do you take that into account so my question about about your guys' stuff as you said you mentioned multiple outdoor kitchens how does how do you take the the weather into consideration for for food presentation absolutely that's a great question when we um so at hook and fork because we're a fully outdoor concept we run all the way through the winter 
we tend to do as food comes up, we'll run it to the tables rather mm -hmm. than trying to hold entire tickets. And we let folks know when they're ordering that that's kind of the pace of it because we want to make sure that folks are getting their food nice and hot. Right. We keep our plates in a smoker. So we keep our plates nice and warm while we're okay. doing that, which is the thing I've noticed. If you put hot food on a cold plate, even in a warm restaurant, it's going to drop in temp. And if you're you know in 25 degree weather, you got no hope. We, when we did the CATS program outside on our checkerboard, we actually moved our culinary team down to the closest space we could find in the building okay. and then set up a hot box as well. So we had our chefs staging plates. They were running out to a hot box and then they were being garnished right as they were going into, right into those tents. So with some, uh, with some attention to detail, you've absolutely. been able to mitigate yeah, a you know, lot and there's, of the, a lot of the issues. There's a lot of things you can do too. Like if you're serving oysters on rock salt, if you fire that whole tray with the rock salt, it's going to hold on to that heat and provide kind of a barrier for you. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think it's just getting creative about, about items. Cause when you're doing chef tastings and you're serving two ounce portions, mm -hmm. you have the same issue. There's not enough, there's not enough mass to hold heat. So you have to be really creative about how you're going on. And if Maybe the maybe super hot food, if it's not a chowder or something with a lot of fat to keep that content, mm -hmm. maybe it's something that we're not serving super ripping hot. You know, maybe the steak has been rested really well and it's served at room temp with a with a ripping hot sauce mm -hmm. or something on it. So just trying to balance out those pieces, get the food to the guests as quickly as possible has been the, the winning move there. Right. Right. Yeah. No, it was just and I mean, no disrespect to this restaurant. Yeah. I, the fact that they. It, it's a were, challenge. Yeah. And, and I get that. And, and I get that. The, they were, you know, they did with what they could. I, it was the thing that we, the thing that was honestly for this is my, my personal, like I really didn't want to listen to train cars clanging into each other. And that's, has nothing to do with them. I mean, it just, it's, they happen to be by one of the railroad tracks in Wenatchee that happens to have a lot of, you know, cars. So, um, oh, well. It's, it's funny that you say that because we, when I was at the Edgewater in Seattle, they have the yeah. that famous hotel right there, but yeah. it's on the train tracks and yeah. It you can feel it in some of the rooms, and it was one of those things that you just can't ever get away from. No, you can't. I mean, yeah, I mean, commerce is going to happen. It's just it's going to happen. But it is. It was just an unintended byproduct of sitting right. outdoors in a little greenhouse. Um, it was a really kind of a weird experience to sit in a little greenhouse too. I mean, that was kind of like. But it's okay. It's January. Um, what else are you going to do? Because I sure as heck wasn't going to sit outside without a greenhouse and heater around me. <laughs> Right. I just, it's like, I just want somebody else to cook for me on this day. Yeah, so. yeah exactly. And yeah, that's exactly. That's right. one of the things about the resort properties, both Union City Market and the resort proper that I just, I love because Union, the town that we're in is such a, it's such a sleepy retiree um, arts community. We've got a really incredible location. We have the most beautiful view of the canal, but we also were peaceful. There's the 106 is a two lane highway that goes across the property and right. it's at the back end of the resort. So all we really get are the sounds of the water. Sometimes you'll get a boat in the summer. Sometimes you get some speedboats, but yeah. But beyond that, it's usually the sound of kids playing and waves, waves right. slapping. One of the things I keep forgetting about is Hood Canal is one of the only fjords in in North America, and that's it is. It's, it's one of two in the yeah. contiguous states. Yeah, so that's kind of an interesting. Like, hmm, okay. So, restaurant wise, you mentioned that you're you're working on um, something with a spa, and I. Mm -hmm. would ask you like so tease us a little bit more what's what's coming what can, what can what can we squeeze out of you as far as you know <laughs> absolutely this, yeah this, we, we just launched our fall dinner menu in the restaurant running just a we're running a little bit behind we had 
a bout of sickness go through the kitchen. So we wanted to wait till we had the whole team back. Um, but we've been launching our fall menu and that's super exciting. We're focusing on kind of warm flavors, roasted vegetables, uh, warm spices, as opposed to kind of our fermented, bright, green, sprouting flavors that we focus on with our spring menu. Okay. And then the spot director, Ashley and I, we've she's she's got an incredible program of following seasonality within her experiences. So okay. all of the little touches in the spa have rotated through the year. She's just moved into little... Um, charcuterie bites instead of having dried fruits and things like that for summer she's moving more into cured meats olives some of those those um, you know kind of fall top as plate flavors mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. I'm working with her on items that are fun to eat but also uh, glamorous to eat so things that aren't really messy things that don't have a lot of sauces and they're not going to get crumbs <laughs> all over your robe when you're sitting out on the back patio right, right. but also things that are going to make you feel good because the the whole point of feeding people isn't just to put food on a plate it's to nourish them it's to create a sense of well-being within them and mm -hmm. when we have folks at the resort you know i get them for three days sometimes and what i whatever i do at dinner is going to impact how they how they spend their night together how they feel in the morning whether or not they get that hike up at sunrise and so I don't build menus around just hitting my costs or just trying to, you know, make a point. I want to build food that makes people feel good, taste mm -hmm. good, morally, impactfully good. We, we work with our local producers. We're really conscious about our sourcing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, all of our organic, all of our salmon in the restaurant, we get organic, fresh year round. We work with a partner up in B.C., who's doing the only sustainable um, King Salmon program in North America that I'm aware of, Creative King. Uh, super, it's a really interesting program. It's really cool. Mm -hmm. And it's some of the best fish that I've ever worked with. So, you know, we we try to make sure that everything that we're bringing to our guests is something that we, we can stand behind, that we're proud of, and that we want to talk about. Because I don't want our service team to ever feel like they can't tell the truth about what's in a dish or how we got it to the plate. And I've worked in those restaurants. Don't ask, don't tell. It's, it's, well, it <laughs> You see who's over my. You see who's over my shoulder. Exactly. Um, you know he's he's had publicly made some really fun statements, which we could probably touch on, but <laughs> maybe we'll go there. Maybe not. Um, what currently? So currently, so you said you just you just launched your fall fall yeah, menu, so we just, and you mentioned just our... and you mentioned spring. Do you do you change the menu then just twice a year, or do you do, do it for all four seasons? We usually shoot for three seasons. So because we don't have a deep, deep winter out mm -hmm. here on the canal, we tend to lump fall and winter together. And okay. then we'll do a spring menu revision and then we'll do a summer. So okay. focusing on kind of those little baby sprouting greens, uh, shellfish coming back online, our early spring, March, April menus tend to be more on the, in my mind, they're green menus. So they're, they're menus with lots of verdant flavors, bright, acidic, things that have that, that bitterness that's kind of coming right up. Mm -hmm. um, to, to complement the fattiness that you get in shellfish that time of year, because oysters are going towards summer spawning season. So March, April, that's really the peak season for oysters. That's when you're going to get the sweetest, um, plumpest bellies. And so counteracting that with something that's got that kind of bright, bitter flavor is one of my favorite ways to play against it. And then in summer, we, we really lean into the farm produce, fresh tomatoes, local corn, um, grilled squash, some some more of those fresh preparations we've we also get a lot of dietary requests here at the resort you know okay. folks folks come out here because they want to stay here not because they necessarily are picking the restaurant so we're really mm -hmm. fortunate that we get the opportunity to work with a big spread of folks and so i've kind of quietly over the last two years been engineering our menu to be more and more easy to work with for folks with you know gluten sensitivities uh, celiac vegans so this summer we had two gluten-free vegan entrees and a vegetarian, a gluten-free vegetarian entree on the menu as well. 
you know, in addition to our seafood, our steak and our pasta programs. But I want to make sure that folks come out and it's, you know, everybody gets a seat at this table, whether or not you're, you know, eating soft foods without a lot of seasoning or you're you you want me to throw out whatever I got at you. Right. You know, and we're going caviar and, and big stuff. So but, you know, and a lot of times those two people are going to be at the same table when we get a corporate group. Well, part of true. the part of the resort's breadbasket is that we do a lot of um, banquet work. So we are one of the top wedding destinations in the state. We won Seattle Best uh, Destination Wedding venue last two years in a row, which was really exciting for the team. Um, but we do we, we do a lot of weddings, and weddings bring the whole family out. So building our menus in ways that are friendly to both mm-hmm. ends of the spectrum has been a big focus for us. And just making sure that everybody feels comfortable here. Whatever the question is, I want to make sure that we have a positive answer. And if not, I'm going to find one for you. Okay. Um, you know, it's, I'm not, I'm not here to make a name for myself. I'm here to make an experience for our guests. I don't, I don't have a further destination in mind as far as cooking goes. I'm not trying to open a restaurant. And so I'm really fortunate that the resort has given me the opportunity to try to create that sort of equity on our menu at the same time that we're pushing for sustainable, delicious, you know, kind of thing, things that'll surprise you in a, in a positive way, not things that you have to ask how to pronounce. <laughs> right. Okay. So I'm going to put you on the spot. Yeah. Now you, I, I will allow you to opt out but I'd really like you to play along. And I mean this in a good natured way too. All right. So first off, let me set the table. Perfect. I'm not trying to but humor me, hear the whole, hear, hear the whole question and let's see if we can get an answer. So you said you do a lot of weddings, you know, buffets or not buffets, um, banquets. Share with me a time it didn't go right. We've all heard those stories like the wedding cake fell over and all of those things. If you had any that, in the moment was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that happened. And it turned out okay. I mean, I'm not trying to like, you know, yeah. the Smith's wedding was ruined. It was terrible. No, come on. There must, there must be some, I got to think there's a funny story we can share here without, you know. <laughs> we've, uh, we've, had, we've had a couple of weddings that, that left a, a chuckle. Usually, usually if there's an issue, it's a communication breakdown between a planner and our staff. But my favorite one from the summer was when we had a we had a couple of new banquet folks in, and it was a huge wedding. We had every we'd pulled people down from the kitchen. Everybody was out of their comfort zone, and we were cutting the cake, and we cut the top layer that had you know the the saving layer. So you know, and it's of course a Saturday night. My pastry chef is off, and they're leaving in the morning, and they want to take their cake with her. So we uh, you know we get on the horn. I start calling everybody who knows how to bake wedding cakes. And fortunately, our pastry chef's incredible. She she lives locally, and she came in and and baked them a, a brand new topper. See that early that's that a morning. cool story. That's a cool story. Yeah. I mean, in the moment, you know, it's like uh oh, but you solved it. You know, it was you know it was one of those things where I was like, well, they're not taking it to their room tonight, so we've got. 16 hours. We've got 16 hours to make this 60 happen. 60 hours to solve this. Yeah. Yeah. And we did. And they got to take a, a fresh, beautiful cake home with them. I think everybody honestly left a little bit happier than they would have. Right. Nobody, I mean, nobody in, likes in a moment? stale cake that sat out all night. So, yeah, it, you know, it, in the moment, things happen. But right. when you have folks who care, our, our motto is yes, of course. Mm-hmm. Regardless of what the question is, I'm going to say yes, of course, and find you an answer. Even if that's yes, of course, that's not going to work. But here's another option. But, you know, whatever it is, people don't ask things because they want to cause problems or upset anybody. They ask it because they need it or because they feel like it's important to them. So my job is to make it happen and not to not to decide whether or not it's a valid request. You know, even when we get folks who ask for their food cooked in ways that I'm curious where they learned it. (laughs) Yeah, I know people are. People are interesting. I I guess, you know, I misspoke earlier. I forgot in college I worked as a banquet waiter. Um, now I'm starting to have all, and that was a long time ago. I'm <laughs> the starting flashbacks to have, are coming in. Yeah, I'm starting to have some of those flashbacks of like, oh, that didn't go well. And it wasn't at a, it was, it was at a, 
uh, a Holiday Inn in Ellensburg. So it wasn't exactly, you know, the Alderbrook. Um, so, you know, our banquet food was, you know, you know, rubber chicken and, and, uh, but you know what? In the moment, it's the same level of expectation. These people have paid money and, and you're there to make it happen. I'm having a memory of a server coming out with a, with a round kind of like, you know, like this and dumping it on a table of people. Um, you know, oops, that left a mark. That's, that's one of the reasons we don't use trays in our dining room. Yeah. I mean, it was just like, okay. So, but you know, Hey, um, yeah, it happens. You know, we've had drinks I mean, spill on people. We've had people knock all kinds of stuff over. Yeah. I mean, it just, it just, it just happens in, you know, it just, in, and you said, but you, you started off, you know, the wedding planner communication, that's so vital in, in having a good, no matter what the, no matter what yeah. you're doing, having good, clear communication is, is, um, is, is vital to a good outcome for everybody. I want to pause, pause Alderuk though. Mm-hmm. You and your partner, you move out from Seattle and you bought, did you buy a property with an oyster bed? Yeah. So we, the hood canal is it pretty much, if you have waterfront on the canal, there's oysters there. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, um, one tiny segue until I get into my story, but the oysters on the hood canal are majority Pacifics, which are an introduced species. They are not our native oyster, which okay. is something that a lot of folks are not aware of, but the Pacifics were brought over by, um, they came off the boat of Captain Sund about 100 and, 100 and change years ago. They washed over in a, in a winter storm. And in the spring, when they went to go back and get their bags of oysters that they brought over from Japan, the oysters had taken the beach and they were doing great. And that was kind of how Pacifics got introduced to the canal. Okay. They're not an invasive species in the way that we talk about green crab being an invasive species. It's negatively impacting our local our local ecosystem. The Pacifics are have a net positive impact. They're great. They filter the water. They help with the oxygen exchange at the intertidal zone. So Pacific oysters are all over the canal. Um, okay. When we started looking for oyster property, there's a few different directions you can go in that. There's different growing regions here in Western Washington, specifically on the peninsula that are good for different reasons. The canal grows great oysters. It's also got houses on it. So there's, you know, if you're going to buy property out here, you're usually buying a mortgage property. Mm-hmm. If you buy land, you know, down off Case Inlet, you might be able to just buy raw land, which lower entry point, but there's also then not going to be any infrastructure around. You're going to have to cut in roads and all that. So being a couple of, sh- a couple of cooks from the city with good credit, but not, you know, endless pockets, we decided to go for a mortgage property here on the canal. So we found, um, we got really lucky. It was 2017, housing housing prices were crashing and we came in at the right time. So we were able to buy basically a whole cove out here for less than we uh, were looking at kind of burned down renovation properties in the Renton area. So, okay. you know, we knew what our budget was. We thought we'd buy a house, fix it up and flip it and then use that money to buy land and realize that we probably weren't even going to be able to get in in the Seattle area within mm-hmm. an hour of our jobs. So that was what flipped us out to the canal. That was when we started looking at the furthest possible point we could make it to work. And Brennan was the furthest point. And <laughs> somehow Brennan's where we ended up. So we bought this, we bought this whole cove in Brennan um, that had been an oyster farm back in the 90s. It had been an oyster, oyster stop off back in the 60s. It's got the the property has this really cool story. Um, our company is named Black Shield Oyster Company after okay. a pirate ship that was docked there in the 60s. Okay. So this this uh this very eccentric character, Charles St. Charles, bought a <laughs> bought a lumber schooner in Polesbo at the end of the 50s. This um, the SS Thayer, which had been an ammunitions runner in the war. It was the 
was a lumber schooner. It was built at the end of the 19th century. Beautiful boat. He buys it in a slightly derelict fashion, sails it from Polsbo around the hook to the canal in Brennan, moors it on this property that he and his wife had inherited from her father, and calls himself a captain because now he's sailed this boat. So, and they start the 101 Oyster Grill. And that is, uh, we've got, we've got postcards and pictures of the original property. That original building that they were selling oysters out of is actually our current garage. So um, that's still there. It's really cool. And, you know, on and off, the property has sold oysters commercially. When we bought it, it was just a residential property, but it had an incredible oyster bed on, just on, in the cove. Mm-hmm. Dozen, billions of oysters, so many oysters. Um, and it's got this weird jetty that comes across too, which at some point they were trying, they were barging basalt in and out. It used to be a quarry. So they built this jetty that you could pull up to, but it creates kind of a, it creates a protected area back there, which is awesome for young oysters because we don't get hit quite as hard. Ton of natural, um, natural feeding coming down, microalgae, all that stuff from, from our creek. We have a private creek that goes mm-hmm. through our property and straight into managed timber. Um, so we have a, it's a really cool location and there's a house on it. So we bought the house, we live in the house. Um, and my partner works full-time from home farming oysters. We are almost finished with our final federal permits. It's taken a lot longer than we thought to get the business up and going. And majority of that was related to COVID. Mm-hmm. We, um, we had planned to move into kind of this last phase, full-time oyster cells. And then COVID happened two weeks after my partner quit his job in the city um, Perfect. So yeah, exactly. And the Army Corps of Engineers, which who's who handles JARPA's the Joint Aquatic Resource Permits, um, they pulled off all of this during COVID and went into emergency work, which right. is the other half of what uh, they do. Understandable. But, yeah. yeah, and you know, but it meant that our permits went on pause for two two and a half years. Okay. So then we kind of restarted the process, twenty twenty one, and then now we are again in that final permitting phase. So when you do an oyster farm, especially especially a, a a noticeable one, like a larger scale one, um, mm-hmm. not just kind of growing oysters for yourself. You work with pretty much every regulatory agency that touches the water, yeah. Department of Health, Fish and Wildlife, County, Federal, um, the tribes. So mm-hmm. we have been working on all of this. We want to make sure that we're good long-term stewards as well, because our goal isn't just to come in and make money. It's to create a life, be partners in the community and do mm-hmm. good work at the end of it. We really want to make sure that we are leaving a positive impact, you know, whenever we leave this property. So we've been going slowly, working with our representatives, um, working with our inspectors, and we are almost there. It's really exciting. So currently, we only do oysters for events. We'll we'll trade in town. Um, we're fully licensed. We've been licensed for a number of years. We have tags right. and all, all the good stuff at the state level, but we don't want to enter into commerce until we're finished with dotting every single T, crossing every I. Because I've seen right. I've seen other farms. You know, people start up small. They don't realize what they're getting into, and then they get hit with a bunch of permit violation issues. Right. So. Yeah, once you once you get the spotlight turned on yeah. you, it's 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 hard to get the spotlight shut yeah. off, and it's very expensive. You know, so, and because because of our shared history working with the Department of Health, we're we're really aware of what what the receivers are going to deal with too. You know, with with the farm, and so our goal is to make table ready shellfish by chefs for okay. chefs. Well, let me ask you. I know nothing about oyster farming. How kind of give us a you know super high level overview of, of oyster farming. What, what is it, what is involved in getting uh, oysters from whatever their beginning stages into, you know, on the half shell, if you will. 
For sure. Uh, oysters, like trees, are broadcast spawners. So both male and female oysters spawn out in the summer. So that's called our natural set. And that's where all the oysters that grow on beaches come from. So when you walk down you know, somebody's property and you just see a bunch of oysters on the beach, that's a natural set. That's wild oysters. Those are beach oysters in the restaurant. Okay. Um, if you, and so that's how, that was where we all started. So all oyster farms started with just grabbing natural oysters off the beach. Okay. Then about 25 years ago, some folks started putting oysters into float bags. Chelsea Farms is the big one around here. And they kind of played around with what happens when you tumble oysters. And that changed the shape of them. Mm-hmm. But the the biggest, biggest shift, and I'm not sure where this started. I don't, I don't, rem- I don't remember who was the first one around here to do this. But um, when farms started using something called a flupsy, a floating upwelling system, mm-hmm. to... Um, to force oysters spawn and then to collect all of the little baby oysters and then sell it as seed. So okay. in the natural world, oysters spawn, little baby zygote comes down, it's got a foot like a clam and it anchors onto something. That's why you see oysters have rocks on them a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Oyster seed is grown in kind of this system where the water's moving and so they don't really anchor onto anything. There's little tiny bits of shell that are put in there for them to anchor, but they're not anchoring onto shoes and big rocks and other clusters. Once those little baby oysters are, once they hit a certain size, you can buy them at three or four different graded sizes. But once they hit like, you know, um, size of like my pinky fingernail, little tiny guys, quarter inch, that's where a lot of folks at my scale buy oysters. So Hama Hama has a flupsy system that they do their own seeding. They don't really sell to the public. Taylor does. They sell off some of their oysters. You can go to yearly oyster sales with them. Um, A lot of the farms like... Most of the independent farms are going to buy their seed from somebody. So we work with our tribal partners up in um, the Jamestown Skalalem tribe. So we buy our oysters from our oyster seed from them, okay. bring it back. We put it in our bags. We have a bag on bottom tumble system. So our bags are on a line anchored to the bottom of the beach. They're not up high on, um, on posts, but they're down on the bottom, but they've got buoys on them. And then, so as the oysters are growing, the buoys are bringing them up and down that does two things. It knocks off the extra growth on the shell. So you get that beautiful cup, that really uniform shape, but it also moves the oysters up in the water off the ground. So it gets them into a better feeding zone, which is why tumbled oysters tend to grow at a, a rapid rate, I'll say for the, the size of the meat inside. Shells mm-hmm. are petite, meat is maxed out and they're growing as fast as they can with, with their natural diet. Okay. So that's, that's kind of how you, there's the two paths to oysters. There's the natural ones, which you can pick up and put in a bag, or you can just buy the seed, which is a much more efficient, consistent way to do it. So if I bought, if I went with you to buy seed, mm-hmm. um, when, when in the year do you do that? Normally you're going to do that. Shoot. When do we do it? We, I think we usually do it in the, in the right at the end of summer. Cause you want to get them in the water before it's super cold. Cause they'll, okay. they won't do well if they're just put out as little tiny babies. But you don't want to put them in the water right before it gets ripping hot either. So we've had these really hot summers recently. So you don't want to you don't want to start your seed off um, right before it's going to get really hot or really cold. So kind of in those shoulder seasons. And yeah. So you so you know post Labor Day, let's say, would that be fair? Okay. Yeah. So I think that yeah, I think September was when we put our first batch. So arbitrarily, we we put a the seed in in Labor Day, just humor me. Um, mm-hmm. When would that, when is that seed then a viable product for you to sell? How long does that process take? Normally we're, we're giving our oysters about 18 months to table size. Months. Oysters okay. are weird though. They're, you know, they're a natural product. So some are going to grow really fast. Mm-hmm. You might be, you know, by the time we're hitting that first Memorial Day, we're going to have some that are ready for market sell. 
Wow. The shells okay. are going to be a little more brittle because they haven't had a full year, but there's right. going to be some that are big already. And there's okay. going to be some that just don't do anything. Um, you know, oysters have a, there's an attrition rate and it's anywhere from, um, you know, you might get 80% of your crop out of it. You might get 70% on a bad year. You might get 90% on a great year, but there's, okay. there's always going to be that attrition rate. So between different growth patterns and different attrition rates, most places will seed every year. They'll be buying product every year. They'll be planting it a couple times a year to make sure that they always have product. And is there any advantage to leaving an oyster for a couple of years? I mean, is there? Yeah, actually we, um, so when we first put oysters on the beach, this is back in 2019, we thought we'd be selling really fast. So I have oysters, I have bagged oysters that are three and a half years old, which is really rare. There's so much labor that goes into bagged oysters. Most places don't have the space to grow them that long. Right. Taylor does occasionally you can get, um, you know, uh, small size grillers, mm -hmm. uh, tumbles, but, uh, they're, you know, it's a two to three year process usually for that. So that's one of the things that I have really enjoyed about not being able to sell oysters is that we're able to see what happens when we continue to play with them, continue to, you know, put some of them on the beach, finish them that way, keep some of them in the bag, see how big we can get them. Pacifics don't have a termination point on size, really. They'll keep going up and, you know, a foot. You'll see these jumbo, jumbo oyster shells, which aren't great for eating necessarily, but there's a huge market. The Asian market loves the jumbo oysters because there's a lot of oyster products, sauces and, okay. um, you know, dried oysters, medicinal products. So for more not serve, yeah. Okay. Yeah, not necessarily okay. for like a culinary aspect, but for right. a processed. Um, right. You know, the, the Pacific Northwest, Washington grows the major like a ton of oysters that are going all around the world. I see Hamahama oysters when I travel to New Orleans, when I've been in Boston, New York City. Um, right. You know, we're, we're famous out here. The Cook Canal's famous for it. Part of that though has to do with the way Washington is set up. You're not, you don't, you pay, you don't pay export tax on shellfish in Washington. So that really incentivizes selling out of country, out of state. Gotcha. Um, a lot of folks sell to brokers up in Vancouver and then the brokers will handle the, the international sales. But once you get it across state lines, down to Portland, up to Vancouver, um, you're looking at different tax structures. Got it. Okay. So to piggyback on the question I asked you earlier about, you know, hey, what went wrong on a banquet type thing? What's gone wrong with running, you know, besides the COVID and, and it taking you long to get started, what other, what weren't you prepared for that you've experienced so far? Because I mean, these are always, to me, these are the fun stories. Like, totally. oh, you know, we didn't think about this. And, you know, because you almost learn, you always learn something cool. Oh, completely. Yeah, my, um, my partner and I have this conversation all the time, you know, oh my gosh, glad we learned that lesson early, you know, glad we learned that lesson early. So, right. um, you know, I think being, at first we were really concerned about keeping our bags in pristine shape, um, you know, making sure there was never barnacles on them. Normally you want to knock barnacles off, they, they inhibit growth. But three years ago when we had that incredible heat wave where I think it hit 112 on the canal, we were temping, uh, you know, 108 or something, yeah. it was crazy hot and so many of the farms lost a ton of product because they had no protection for it right. we were in year four or something of this holdup, and so our bags at this point had been pretty overgrown we were waiting to see what happened we didn't want to continue to work on the beach because everything we did was exposing us to another level of either oh god we're gonna get in trouble or we don't we don't know where this is going so we we chose to leave our oysters and barnacle bags that summer and we actually we didn't lose anything um our beach was incredibly insulated and one of the things we learned was that there are um there's human impacts that we can have on protecting the oysters from the heat and from the cold. Um, you know, and so not changing stuff out of the bags, which we thought was going to be a mistake, ended up being a really positive one. Okay. And then on the flip side, the 
the paperwork has changed so much in the last five years that because we haven't gotten to sale, everything we've drafted out as far as tags, HACCP plans, um, you know, all that kind of stuff has changed. And so we've been really lucky that we haven't been putting all of, you know, we don't keep reordering more stuff because they keep changing the vernacular, they keep changing some of the policy stuff, which, you know, and it's all moving in a really good direction. But yeah, if we, we bought oysters five, four years ago, um, way early, you know, we've spent, we've put a lot more money onto the beach probably than we had expected to before sale, uh, which has been the biggest mistake because we didn't, didn't quite understand the breadth of this, of what we were entering. Right. Cause one thing in Washington too, that's interesting. A lot of folks don't know is, um, you can own your tide lands here completely. We're the only state in the country where you can absolutely own tide land. And if you've owned your tide land for longer than a certain period of time, going back through the sixties. So, um, our friends over at Mike's beach resort are in this boat. They were able to put in a raised tumble farm because the land has been owned by their family directly, mm-hmm. um, outdating something called the bolt decision, which was when the tribes took the, um, the state to court basically to renegotiate the usual and accustomed harvest rates, which had been sold off, taken away from our indigenous peoples here. Um, you know, and it was a really great move because it, it meant that commercial shellfish farms had to, um, you know, like any far, any beach that farms oysters, the tribes have a right to come in and take part of your natural set, which, you know, there, there's, there's a lot of opinions about this. I think it's a really incredible piece because it keeps us connected to the tribes. It keeps the farmers working with our neighbors Mm -hmm. and we can't undo obviously what has been done, but it's, it's a clear attempt, I think, by the state to try to equalize what's been taken. You know, I, I grew up in California and California beaches are public beaches. So mm-hmm. not that they're growing oysters down in San Diego, but nobody owns the beach. Nobody's profiting on the beach. It's just commercial. You know, right. the, all the businesses down there are for-profit commercial. So the Hood Canal has been through a bunch of different series of land ownership um, things. And so we, being a new farm, we purchased in 2017. So we, um, you know, we have a different share relationship than Hama does or that Mike's Beach Resort does or that the resort does because they've owned, you know, ownership has changed here, but there's, if, if the business licenses, anyway, this is getting dry, but. Um, no, 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 no. I, it's not, I'll explain why. Yeah. Continue on actually, please. Um, but yeah, so, you know, we, we didn't know what we were entering into necessarily when we started as I think a lot of small businesses, especially uh, restaurant, restaurant folks don't tend any to Any small numbers. business, it's yeah. just any of us. Um, you know, and so we, we're figuring it out, but the, the delays in sales have allowed us to really lean into education, to work closely with the Department of Health, to be on the front line of getting new certifications as they come available. Um, okay. You know, and making sure that we are doing everything we can to be in compliance and working with our inspectors instead of just being kind of told what to do. Our shared background with working with Department of Health for, I think, 40 years combined now, something like that. Um, we've worked with a lot of health inspectors. We've, we both speak the language, um, you know, and at the end of the day, we're all on the same team. We're trying to get food onto people's plates without making them sick and make sure that everybody on the back end is also taken care of the Department of Revenue, our neighbors, all of it. So the, the delays have been financially expensive, but they've been really impactful and educationally beneficial to us, I'd say, because we haven't, we haven't been reliant on that income to get us through. So as things have changed, as issues have happened, as we've had heat waves that nobody was anticipating, we didn't have the impact to our direct income. Um, you know, is still in this investment. That you might have had. had exactly, you, yeah. If, you know, if we were going full speed and I, you know, had taken a step back at my job, and we lost 50% of our product, that would have been devastating. I don't know if we would have stayed on the property, but right. because of everything else that's going on, we've we've actually been pretty safe in there. We're, we're in like a, a passenger position right now. We're watching what's happening. All right. 
last question about the oysters is, so you mentioned you have a cove and all of this. I think of land, I think of acres. Um, you know, if I'm talking to you, if you were a farmer and you had a an apple orchard, you would have yeah. an, ex, an, an acre of apples, five mm-hmm. acres of apples, something like that. How do we measure the amount of oysters that you have under under yeah. cultivation? So, so we have we have about twelve hundred feet of linear tide land on the property. Um, our total property is seven and a quarter acres of land, and then there's another about three acres uh, at extreme low tide of water. Okay. Our farm cultivation is is just under one acre. It's six hundred square feet is the actual farm, and then we've permitted a little bit larger than that. Okay. Um, so our block is within our tide lands. It's on the inside. Um, and it's currently it's 100 by 60. And so we've got 10 60 foot line or 10. I didn't build it. My partner did. Uh, but I think we've got 10 60 foot lines, um, okay. you know, on the beach. So 1,200 feet of tide land shaped in a real squiggly kind of pattern with the cove. And then um, yeah, about 600 square feet of farming acreage currently. So Once, Yeah. What Which is, doesn't sound so, like a lot of feet, right? No, it's it tiny. doesn't. Yeah. But if you imagine one oyster bag, you know, holds maybe a couple hundred oysters, say, oh, uh, you know, okay. 250 oysters. Maybe these bags are, they're pretty big, two okay. feet by three feet. And you've okay. got, you know, every 10 feet, you've got six of those on your line. Oh, okay. Kind of stuff. So you, you get a lot of oysters on a small amount of beach. Some of the, some of the most well-known oyster farms around here, the independents are tiny. They've got 150 feet of beach that they're working with. Okay. If you were at full production with 600 feet, Mm-hmm. about how many oysters would that be a year? To we're, we're projecting that that would be about half a million seed purchase. So maybe 400,000 finished and it, and it would be scalloped through the year. So, um, you know, it would be summer coming up in April, summer coming up in September, right. summer coming up in December. So now, rotating to help for me, sure. To help me wrap my brain around this, if you, we use Taylor or Hama Hama, mm-hmm. how many are they producing? I have Ish. no idea. I have no idea. I, mean, I will be would honest. Be it massive, is massive, wouldn't it? Millions, like okay. huge, right. huge numbers. Because um, your numbers are—that's a lot. That's more than my brain was kind of. Yeah, thinking. we're okay. we're a pretty good sized physically for a two-person operation. Um, right. You know, and then some farms do it differently. Some companies will lease beaches from people mm-hmm. um, in different areas. Some companies will own all of their beaches. They will just buy property as it comes up, um, right. and then some people work with with people who have beaches, but they don't actually own their own beach and they are just the shell stock shipper. So there's different, there's different ways to grow oysters. Some people just grow and they sell directly to wholesale. They don't want to deal with the, um, they don't want to deal with the licensing, the tagging. They don't want to deal with the distribution. That's the big issue for a lot of folks is how do you get them there? Who's going to drive them? What car are they going in? Um, You know, so distribution is where a lot of companies hit the bottleneck and decide to either go wholesale or just do local sales. So where do you guys want to go? We're, when you can flip the switch. Yeah. We're planning to go um, direct to chef, so direct distribution to restaurants, but keep the network pretty small. We're not we're not looking for a massive operation. Right. Um, yeah. You know, if we sell to four four or five restaurants, I think that would probably hit our goals. Okay. And the goal being that we're producing a really high quality boutique product that is it's exclusive to our clients. You know, we don't want to be we don't want to be the oyster that's in everybody's bar because that means right. that every single one of those oysters somebody had to look at. I don't know how much time I have in my day. Um, right. You know, it's we, we want to make sure that we're staying super hands-on, super directly involved with this, okay. um, you know, and managing that quality. Because if it's not, if I'm selling an oyster that I wouldn't want to receive, I've already missed the mark. 
It's like if I'm serving food, I wouldn't eat. What's the point? So let's pivot back to Alderbrook now. Mm -hmm. Alderbrook, you you mentioned earlier you guys have a a good relationship with with local farmers, local Mm -hmm. local sourcing. Um, I, I, I'm kidding. Uh, you know, you, you, you don't have a six Cisco trailers backing up to your, your, you know, your, you might, you know, but you know, you're, you're trying to work with local stuff. Yeah. As much as possible. As much as possible. Not everything, not, not everything, you know, I understand that, but it's, you're, you also mentioned, um, you're trying to deliver a good experience. You keep your costs in mind, but it's not necessarily about getting that extra 2% profit yeah. by going and getting a, you know, we're definitely That's, a for-profit company, but we're an sure. experience-driven property more than right. anything. We're not the Hyatt. We're not, you know, and we're you not. Want, you, yeah, you're, you're looking for the best value product you can get at the wholesale yeah. level from a, from a, a sustain, not, maybe not sustainable is not the right word, but from a local, you know, if you can source it locally, you, I think that's your preference. Is we that, do. Yeah. I, and so, okay. you know, we bring in, we only bring in whole fish, whole sturgeon, whole halibut, whole salmon, and we use the entire, we use the entire thing. You know, we smoke and brine all of the carcasses. Um, and all that, even when we're bringing in, um, you know, kind of the big box truck products in, we're still looking for the local options within there. And so, uh, to, to one of my favorite Anthony Bourdain quotes is, you know, this farm to table movement, pretty much all the food I've ever served has come from a farm and I'm sure serving it on a table. So, you know, this idea that farm to table means something really specific and small. And I've worked in those concepts and I've known all of my farmers at certain restaurants and I know all of my sales reps here and I trust them to bring me local right. farm products. But regardless, we're serving farm fresh food on beautiful tables. I got to ask you, you said you, you smoke and you brine the, the carcasses. What does that turn into? We, uh, so our smoked salmon is primarily a byproduct of our whole salmon program here in the resort. Okay. So, you know, we take the heads, the carcasses, the trim, the bellies, all of it, we brine it and then we smoke it. And then we, uh, we have our staff pick, pick the salmon. And so when you get the smoked salmon bagel in the morning, that's, you know, that's this, that's the byproduct of that whole salmon. And it's, it's for two reasons. We do this for two reasons. And one is cost and one is just respecting the animal and making sure that we're taking sure. everything we can. If we're going to, if we're going to take life on this one, I, w- I want to make sure that it's a valuable life. I was raised vegetarian. I didn't even start eating meat till I was in my twenties in culinary school. And so okay. for me, that, that relationship with our food is it's moral as well as just commercial. You know, I want to make sure that we're treating things respectfully, treating the time of the farmers respectfully. Um, you know, with okay. our sturgeon, we will brine it, smoke it, and we'll probably do something like a brandod, um, you know, a warm smoked whitefish dish would be, would be a great fall special. All of our halibut okay. trim we sent over to the market this year. Um, so we're serving halibut filet in the restaurant and then all of the little trim products from that. Our market team has been smoking and they've got this really incredible halibut cake on their menu right now. We do crab cakes. They have whole okay. crab, so they're doing a halibut cake. Um, but, so we try to find outlets for all of the trim, even if it's something like putting it into family meal for our staff. We, we have a whole okay. um, a chat room up here that we serve hot and cold meals to our staff throughout the day at the okay. resort. So even if it's not a menu, it's still going somewhere. Okay. I normally ask three questions at the end of every conversation. And with you, I think I'm going to give, I'm still going to ask you the questions, but I'm going to ask you a little differently. Okay. So I'll tell you what the two of the questions are. The third one, I won't, you know, I want to tell you what the three, the two questions are. I don't want you to answer anything. And then I'll re-ask the question. So number one is where's a great place to get some coffee around you. And number two is I'm showing up at, Alderbrook in Union around lunch. Where's a great place to go for lunch? I'm not going to ask you those questions like that. I'm going to ask you as far as 
meal goes. If I showed up at Alderbrook and you said, Scott, come out to Alderbrook. I want you to experience the restaurant or something. I want you to tell me what I'm going to have for three meals. What's, what's my breakfast? What's my lunch? And what's my dinner going to be? What would you say I should try? Ooh, I like that one. All right, so, go. Go. Okay. Uh, so if I was going to invite you out to the Alderbrook, and I do want to actually invite you out to the Alderbrook, come stay, come hang out with me. Let's eat some food. Um, I would I would suggest that you start uh, your morning in our drinkery, which is our little coffee shop concept. They've got really okay. awesome, warm breakfast sandwiches. We have pastries that our pastry department makes, espresso, okay. and they have a full breakfast cocktail menu. So you can get the world famous Alderbrook, Bloody Mary, a warm cinnamon roll straight out of the oven. And they, uh, can't, I can't do the Bloody Mary. No, I, I can't either. People love them. But I, I don't get that. That's I'm sorry. Sorry, Bloody Mary fans. I'm not one. Our, uh, okay. if, you, if you're a brown like our Alderbrook coffee is fantastic too um, but yeah I'd start, so, so I'd start who, in the drinkery okay who's your coffee roaster who are you what coffee are you guys serving we work with Uraco U-R-R-A-C-O Uraco coffee um, okay right here out of, out of the local area Kevin brings us coffee fresh every week it's what we serve okay. in the restaurant the drinkery espresso all of it and putting you on the spot what 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 how would you describe the coffee is from a roast standpoint is it is it a light roast is it a medium roast is it dark what do you what do you guys what I do call you it dra- a, towards? i started as a barista many 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 years ago um, okay. i call it a real robust medium it's not it's not a french roast it's not a dark espresso roast but it's got okay. a really nice nutty caramel flavor if you take it black um, and it still okay. stands up to cream and sugar which is one of the things okay. i really love about it i put cream in my coffee yeah well can't you can't, can't win them all can't win them all that's okay all right so so that all sounds awesome so you know I've, I've i've had breakfast and now i've gone out and done something around alderbrook to you know work, work that breakfast off it's lunchtime what are you recommending uh, i'm gonna pick you up in the shuttle and we're gonna drive two miles down the road to the union city market and we're gonna yeah. have lunch at hook and fork out on the bulkhead on the water watching them grill up oysters do half crabs shuck in fresh uh little wop little baby baby shooters for us um our kitchen manager down there lee is doing a great job he was with us for years um, on our banquet team over here. And then we've kind of turned him loose over there. He's been going to local farms, finding me, finding me beef guys. It's, uh, he's, okay. he's doing really cool stuff. But their, their food is so fresh. It's so You can see it cooked in front of you. You can see it cut. You know, they'll cut the potatoes for breakfast right as they're cooking them. So okay. super fun experience, um, you know, eating with your hands. They've got this really cool. We started with vintage enamel, and the business got so big that we actually had to buy real plates finally after five years. Um, okay. But, you know, so it's, they've got, it's a different feel. Everything down there, it's different than the resort, different textures, different, different color palette. But you can sit right on the bulkhead and throw the oyster shells off right back into the water from whence they came. Okay. That sounds fun. That sounds really good. Um, so we've taken the shuttle there. You're going to shuttle me back. Yeah, we'll at least the, I hope you are. Yeah, we'll hit, uh, we'll hit the market on the uh, we'll hit the market on the way back. We've got a, a, a small retail space over there that sells local makers, um, handmade items, local art, all that kind okay, of stuff. We'll grab, cool. grab a couple souvenirs and then head back to the resort. Probably hit the spa, maybe get a massage, spend the afternoon in our saltwater pool. Um, it's beautiful, okay. even in the winter. It's right on the water, big glass greenhouse with the pool, tropical okay. tropical plants. It's really cool to sit in during a rainstorm too. That's my favorite time to be out there. Oh, that'd be cool. That'd be very cool. Um, all right. What do you what do you got for me for dinner? And then for dinner, we're gonna go to the restaurant. Um, okay. We'll probably set you up down on Kings Row. That's our waterfront line of of tables, so you can watch the sunset. Uh, this time of year, it's a five o'clock seating if you want the sunset. But uh, I'm old. It's okay. <laughs> and then we've got 
So with our with our fall menu, I'd probably send out, um, you know, our shrimp and grits is really awesome. We've got our Dungeness crab cakes. Uh, we, okay. have a, we have a whole oyster. We call it the oyster barge on the menu. So we do raw shooters, grill, baked, and then fried. Um, so probably start okay. with a little sample of oysters too. So you can kind of see what we're doing differently at the resort. Right. Um, our new, our farm stand salad is one of my favorite ones. So it's, it's a gluten-free vegan salad, but it's got roasted purple Charleston sweet potatoes, uh, sweet pickled fresh cranberries, uh, toasted hazelnuts. So a little bit of a salad, kind of an intermezzo there after the fatty seafood first course. And mm-hmm. then for dinner, probably roll into, depending on how hungry you were, either a filet or a ribeye. And then one of our fish dishes. Our salmon dish is fantastic. I'm really excited about our sturgeon, though, this winter. Okay. We're getting our sturgeon fresh from Columbia River. Um, if you're not a fish guy, sturgeon's really cool. It's like a dinosaur. It's one of the it's one of the ancient fish. So right. they're fun to butcher. They're weird looking. Um, they cook almost more like a red meat than a white meat. But they're a local product. And they're something that I think a lot of folks aren't expecting to see on a restaurant menu. So our sturgeon dish right now is coming with a piquillo rui, um, a little bit of a lentil pilaf, and then some pickled shallot and radicchio salad on top. So you've got the fatty, the buttered back lentils, and then you've got that bright crisp texture on top. So a little bit of meat, a little seafood, and then probably finish off with our um, hazelnut s'mores tort. So we do do kind of like a a huge house-made marshmallow on top of a, a flourless chocolate tort. Um, and then we're finishing right now with hazelnut brittle, hazelnut ganache. Wow. Okay. All right. So we're going to wrap this up. I've got two questions. I lied. There's two questions. So the first one, they're both about you, though. So it's all good. So first off, what didn't we talk about that we should have? What did I overlook that we should have brought up? My favorite season here on the canal, possibly. Okay. Uh, what is your favorite season on the canal? April, for sure. April is oyster month here at the resort okay. it's also to me it's one of the perfect times to come visit because we haven't gotten all of the spring breakers out yet we haven't gotten all of our vacationers out yet but we're starting to get into the good season you know you can get out on a boat fishing you can go out and 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 explore some of the the hiking trails and the waterways of the canal without the crush of summer tourism <laughs> right right okay all right here's our last question cake or pie and why the contentious one uh <laughs> i'm gonna go with the non-obvious answer i love cake really yeah I know. why do you say it's the non-obvious I, answer? I think most people in most of the chefs i know are pie people and it's because there's way more methodology in pie a good pie crust is something special not everybody makes okay. one and getting the right ratios in there getting the right texture the right the right sweetness balance in pie i think is way harder than nailing a cake just just you know baked goods are pretty straightforward it's but god i just i love a giant sticky slab of chocolate cake (laughs) giant sticky slab of chocolate he's He's a pie guy for sure and it's his mom's pie she makes the best pie i've ever had and what what is mom's go-to pie that you're like saying this is this is the one what is she what is she doing it's her apple pie and it's um you know fresh apples double crust she, she okay. also makes this incredible beef and broccoli pie. Um, we her, really sad. We lost Kathy this year, but her pie recipe is something that I have, have tried so hard to, to nail because it's such a special piece of our family. Um, but yeah. And no, have you succeeded? No. <laughs> no, I make why a great pie think, crust. But why is this? So, so I'm not, I'm not a, I'm not a talented, I have, I don't have talent in the kitchen. It's a recipe. You're following the science of it, if you will. 
And baking is definitely a science. But one of the things about pie, and this is what makes it weird and, and a little bit hard, is that there's it, there's a recipe, but there's a touch to it. Um, okay. Some of the best some of the best bakers in the world are the cutest, tiniest little old ladies who don't have a huge amount of hand strength, and they don't have a huge amount of you know they're not using thermometers, they're not temping their breads. They know what right. it feels like, though, and there's a really fine balance with pies, as there is with muffins, between overmixing, where it gets gummy, and undermixing, mm -hmm. where it falls apart. So pie crust is one of those kind of magical moments where you know when it's right, if you know if it's right. And if not, so, a lot of people will just take it way too far. So the science fails, we need the art and the touch. Yeah. Same okay. thing as sourdough. Sourdough is another one of those. You can have a recipe, and if you're not... If your heart and soul's not in it, it's not going to work the same. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So gooey, sticky chocolate cake. Yeah. Okay. I think tiramisu counts as cake too, so that would probably be my favorite cake. <laughs> now, what's been interesting to me is I've been asking this question for a while now. Um, had a guest on. We never aired the episode because the, the audio quality was bad. So. Mm -hmm. She's, I, I tried to give her her props where I stole the question from because she told me about it. But I've lately been writing down the answer because I actually think pie is in the lead by a lot. Like yeah. I'm shocked by how, how, like the last 10 people, I think you're the only cake person. I think it's like 90% pie. And yeah. I'm really, I didn't expect it to be 50-50. You're like, okay, but I didn't expect 90-10. Yeah, the unobvious answer. Um, yeah, I mean, and when you say it like that, I was like, yeah, she's not wrong. You know? I, mean, I think part of it too is that a lot of adults don't, um, our palates have moved on. A lot of folks are not here for just that like sugar bomb dessert at the end of it. Right. And, and that's I, what a lot of people say is like, yeah. it's too sweet, too sweet. I don't like frosting. It's too sweet. It's, you know, it's, right. it's just a lot of bread in yeah. there. And, right. you know, I've so many times I've gone out to dinner. Menu's not not doing anything for me. I'll just go straight to dessert. You guys can have a steak. I'm going to have the coconut cream pie. My grandma always taught me, if you got to pick your calories, pick the ones you want. You know, and she wasn't wrong. Grandma was wise. She was. Grandma was wise. She was. Well. Thank you very much, Sarah, for taking the time. Um, this has been fun. I learned more about oysters. I've learned more about Alderbrook. Those those are both good things. Fantastic. And I I hope you can get through the final hurdles with regulatory agencies because that's you know let's let's be honest that's no fun for anybody. But you're getting close. That's awesome. Sounds like Alderbrook is firing on all cylinders, and that's fabulous. It is. We are, uh, we're relaunching our cats program this fall. So we're doing a chef's table this year, which I'm really excited about. So we'll be cooking with people. Um, okay. For the first now, time, will so. that be you or do you, do you make, or do, do other be... members of your staff get the opportunity? Uh, I'm gonna I almost my... said, do you make somebody else do it? But I don't think it's. <laughs> uh, so I'm working with my banquet chef on this, my banquet sous chef. Um, he and I wrote the menu together, but he's going to be kind of the spearhead on this one. So I'll be focused on our restaurant. Um, I will come down sometimes. I'll do some of these, I'll float, you know, float in if we need a hand, but I'm going right. to let him and our special events uh, cook from the market. Take this one. So, because we have, we have six or seven different outlets depending on the week. Um, you know, mm -hmm. I can't be in all of them at all times, but I try to work with all of those managers right. directly on all of our menus. One last thing. Where can people find out more about you or about Alderbrook? Where do you recommend people look? Alderbrookresort.com has okay. links to all of our menus, our events. Uh, it's got a bio page on me. 
And other than that, Sarah Harvey Superhero on Instagram. Sarah Harvey Superhero. I all, like that. Yeah, all one word. I like that a lot. Well, thank you. This is a lot of fun. Thank you, Scott. It's been an absolute pleasure. Hope you enjoyed the show. You can reach me on Twitter at Explore State. I'd love to hear your comments. You can also visit our website at explorewashingtonstate.com. If you know anyone who would like the show, it'd be amazing if you'd share the show with them. This is the biggest way that we grow this show. Good old word of mouth. Glad you were here with me today, and I hope to have you listening to the next episode. See you then.